Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to EU Confidential, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of how Brussels and national leaders are making decisions and changing Europe. Don't forget to rate us or review us on whichever platform you found this podcast on. We get great feedback by email. I know you're enjoying it. But the more you can go and give that information on the platforms you found this, the more visible the podcast will be and the more people we can bring into the EU confidential community. So what's on the agenda this week in Brussels and across Europe? Well, as much as some people might like to be caught up in Brexit or the German election, it's hard to overlook North Korea and the sheer potential for destruction that the instability of the North Korean regime might be bringing to our world. And of course, the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey and the arrival of Hurricane Irma, that brings its own sense of destruction. And it's going to bring us more and more tense climate change debates as people wonder why these storms are happening with such frequency, what can be done to prevent them, what can be done to mitigate the effects when they do arrive. Now, our main guest this week is David McAllister. He's a big wig in Germany's Christian Democratic Union. He's ideally placed to talk to us about these key issues that are being debated across the continent of Europe right now. He's a dual British-German citizen. He's been a German state premier and he now chairs the Foreign Affairs Committee of the European Parliament. So he's really the perfect guest to have on this week. I think one thing is important. We can only start a second half of a match when the first half is finished. And we're still playing the first half of this match. But before we go to David, I'm going to have a chat with Jack Blanchard. He's the author of the new London Playbook column, the cousin of the Brussels Playbook column that launched this week. It's such a smooth product. If you haven't checked it out already, I'm really impressed with what Jack has been able to do right off the bat. You can sign up at politico.co.uk forward slash London Playbook. Let's get into it. Jack Blanchard, welcome to the program. You have just kicked off as the author of The London Playbook. Uh, how's that going this week? Um, it's been great fun. I haven't really slept very much yet. I don't really have figured out quite how you do this, uh, Ryan. You've been doing it for a while. Maybe you can offer me some advice because it's been great fun writing it and getting all the stories and everybody seems to like it. But, you know, I feel like I've had about four hours sleep since Sunday night, which doesn't feel very sustainable at the moment. Well, when I started off, I actually was getting up at 4, 4.30 in the morning to do the second half of it. 
and I kept that going for about six months and then I just gave in and decided I had to, to do it all before I, I went to bed. So um, if I have any tip, it's like work with the adrenaline as much as you can and then at some point your body has to give in to reality. And coffee, right? Lots of coffee. Coffee. Well, that's how we ended up with the coffee tips in the playbook because I was in <laughs> really? such desperate need of them that I just started collecting them from people. But I have good news for you. David McAllister, who we are going to speak to later in the podcast, he has been reading it from the get-go. And so you've already got a big fan who is close to Angela Merkel and is uh, also a Scottish uh, man by birth. So he's got the British passport and the German passport, and he likes you. So you must be doing something right. That is a good start. I have to say, all the feedback has been really nice so far. I don't know whether it's just the people I've been asking have been, you know, too embarrassed to tell me what they really think, but everyone's been really good, and lots of people reading it, lots of people talking about it in Westminster. So, um, so we're pretty happy so far. Excellent. Well, let's keep that ball rolling. The thing on the top of my head, chatting to you, was we just watched this German election debate on Sunday night, and it went for 90 minutes, and there wasn't a mention of Brexit at all. And... I'm presuming that wasn't exactly uh, breakfast chatter the next morning in Britain. But did that register at all? Is anyone sort of using that as a piece of feedback about how they move next in the Brexit discussions? You know, it's amazing how little attention British people tend to pay to European politics, except when they're talking about Britain. And so the fact that Brexit wasn't spoken about probably just means that nobody here would have paid attention. It's a sad fact. That, that Britain does not turn its attention to European politics nearly as much uh, as it should. And so, no, it didn't really. I mean, within Westminster, there were journalists following it, and they were sort of sat there waiting for the Brexit section, and, of course, it never came. And I, I do think there was, it was a bit of a, a stark message to some of us politicos over here about just how much of a priority it is, uh, certainly in Berlin. But at the end of the day, most people are pretty basic. So they probably just thought, hang on, I can knock off two hours earlier now. I don't have to file. So <laughs> I'm not sure. right. don't know how many journalists would have thought that was bad yeah. news. <laughs> uh, now, the other thing I was doing over the weekend, I've been going to weddings uh, involving Brits and in the UK, and I was collecting... Uh, you know, like sort of man on the street sort of feedback about where Brexit uh, is likely to hurt. And um, the sort of feedback I got was um, if there's an NHS staff gap, people are really going to feel it. If the pound drops and people start going on their winter and their summer holidays, they're going to absolutely go mental that the, the price has gone up if they're traveling abroad. And if the Queen dies, there was this sense that there might be some kind of collective uh, nervous breakdown of the country a little bit in the style of the Diana funeral of 20 years ago, um, as people could have questioned what their new place in the world is and where their government is taking them. Have you been thinking of Brexit kind of out of this bubble of the negotiations and, and where it might be hitting home in the UK? It's interesting. The Queen one is a really interesting one. I've heard this theory. Uh, I find it very hard to envisage. If you're someone like myself, um, you've just grown up, the Queen has always been there. You know, there, there is no time before the Queen. She is like this omnipresent existence in the UK. So it'll be, it will be very interesting to see what happens to the country if and when that happens. I think that the pound holiday thing has already happened. I mean, I've just been away to Europe for a week in the summer and my holiday cost me far more than it would have done last year. And I think a lot of families this summer will have seen that and realised that and felt the pinch, whether they're all making the link between the Brexit vote last year and the fact that holiday is suddenly so expensive. I'm not sure. I think, I think for most people, um, they sort of feel like the big crunch is, is coming, 
you know, on the on the deal or no deal, really. I mean, I, I think that the biggest impact is, is, is jobs. And, you know, if the sort of worst case scenario happened that some of the very pro-EU um, politicians have been warning about and we have this real, you know, catastrophic impact on the economy, I think that would obviously be, the, that's the sort of big crunch that people are braced for or hoping doesn't happen. Now, the man in charge of this kind of global strategy for the UK, I mean, I guess he's the face at least, Liam Fox, the Minister for International Trade. What was he telling you when you sat down with him earlier on in the week? Because I've seen these stories coming out throughout the week, so he must be a bit of a chatterbox. Yeah, yeah. Um, my colleague Tom McTagg had a good a good long chat with, uh, with the International Trade Secretary on Sunday night just before we launched playbook the following morning and he, and he had lots of interesting things to say for himself he's not a man who likes to shirk from giving his opinion he's one of the most strongest pro-brexit figures uh, in the cabinet along with boris johnson um the probably the most interesting thing he said that got picked up by lots of other news outlets over here and was certainly very well read um over in brussels was was his sort of admission that his you know his job is to go around and secure these big new trade deals with other countries that Britain's supposed to be off looking forward to once we leave the EU and we're allowed to sign other trade deals. And yet he admitted that he was having to turn countries down um, to negotiate a, a deal because he doesn't have the resources in his own department, which is a bit of a stark admission from someone whose entire, you know, raison d'etre is to be out negotiating these deals. And we hear from the government all the time that they're, they're, that they're out there doing that. And, and in reality, they just don't have anything like the capacity to deal with it because it's been so long since Britain did negotiate any kind of trade deal, you know, 40 years, that, that it's, they're only just starting to build up the sort of capacity to do it at all, let alone with multiple countries at the same time. And so it was a bit of a reality check, I think, from where, you know, what we're actually ready to do compared with the rhetoric that we heard last year during the campaign. What really kind of made me kind of wow moment for me was when uh, those reports came out, I think a couple of months ago, maybe three months ago, that they were close to signing uh, a top Canadian negotiator as their top negotiator, but they weren't willing to haggle with him over the salary. And okay, that's you know standard civil service practice is you get paid what you get paid. You don't get to come in and, and negotiate bonuses and things like that. But on the other hand, they've spent more than a million pounds with these external HR recruiters to recruit, frankly, not that many people. So they seem to be willing to, to spend big on one hand and then shoot themselves in the foot and not actually get the top rank people to go and do the negotiating for them on the other hand so yeah it does it does seem a little bit self-defeating classic not joined up government um his department pushed back pretty hard on that story and fans to them they insist that they never particularly wanted the canadian guy and they've got the person they wanted this uh, man called crawford falconer who's they brought him from new zealand and the other interesting thing is that they're having to get to all the world looking for these top negotiators because, you know, Britain just doesn't have any. Nobody's got any experience here of doing it. Uh, and it's certainly one of the things that's hampering potentially not just the trade negotiations, but indeed potentially the Brexit negotiations, because the EU is very used to, you know, sitting down with all sorts of parties and, and thrashing out deals. UK, not so much. We're certainly getting those murmurs out of the UK representation and the the departments that are really doing a lot of the negotiating back in Whitehall, setting the strategy, where the people who are doing that now, they're either there because they are diehard Brexiteers or they're sort of the last people left standing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting point. And, and the wider point, of course, is that great swathes of our civil service 
do not support Brexit. I would say very few of our civil servants supported Brexit. And so you suddenly have this huge sort of machine of government that's putting all of its effort into doing something that it fundamentally doesn't believe is a good idea, which creates all sorts of tensions, not just in the Brexit negotiating team, but right back here domestically as well. And we've seen this week an extraordinary leak of the Home Office's draft document for an immigration system in Britain uh, after Brexit. You know, a sort of a huge document that they've been working on for ages, not the sort of thing that would normally get passed to a journalist, and especially to a journalist at The Guardian, which is where it went to, which is a sort of hostile to the government, very pro-immigration newspaper. Clearly an act of sabotage, or I would guess an act of sabotage by a civil servant who's probably not very happy about the direction the government's taking. And that, that sort of thing that we've we've seen over in America, it's been quite an issue for the president there with sort of civil servants apparently working against him through leaking. It'd be interesting to see if we see more of that as Brexit uh, you know, carries on over the next few months. Yeah, it does seem like a real structural problem to the UK's efforts, where normally, in most issues, even where there's been a divisive election or you know there are fundamental differences of opinion, you normally see some kind of sense of national unity or that people keep the fights to home and they present a united front abroad. But this seems to be one of those issues where you know the UK is still a little bit if not at war it's with itself, it's certainly not uh, come to peace with what's happening with Brexit. And, yeah, I get this sense it's going to drag on. Oh, well. without a doubt. The country still feels very divided. I mean, but but it's important that, that people over there don't think that that means there is a groundswell of opinion from people here who want the decision reversed. Uh, there is no evidence of that the case. I mean, for most people who voted remain in the referendum and, and obviously narrowly lost, their attitude now is, well, you know, that's the decision. Let's just get on with it. That's what most people think. They're not thinking that, you know, let's all fight to to keep us back inside the EU. That, 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 that just isn't that. It's a sort of resigned acceptance that this is happening. And I think they'd quite like the government just to get on with it so that we can all stop talking about it. It's, it's, it completely, you know, there's a, there's a news sort of vacuum here of Brexit just sucking everything up. And it's, it, it's all that certainly I seem to write about and all, the, uh, all that you really hear about in the newspapers. And I think for a lot of people, that's quite a, a frustration in the turn-off. Well, you've got one extra vote in Brussels for getting on with it. It's now time to get on with the rest of the podcast. So, Jack Blanchard, thank you for joining us, and good luck with the London Playbook early morning. Thanks for having me, Ryan, and thanks for your help with it. And now it's time to hear from David McAllister, who chairs the European Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee. He has been a state premier in Germany, and he's an ally of Angela Merkel. This week, there is a bit of a mushroom cloud in the room that we should probably start by talking about, and that's the situation with North Korea. What's your take on how the sanctions response to the North Korean regime is developing and, and obviously that concerning nuclear test over the weekend? Well, obviously, the developments in North Korea are very alarming. The latest nuclear test was once again a direct and unacceptable violation of the country's international obligations not to proceed or test nuclear weapons. This has been determined by the United Nations Security Council resolutions, and this is a major provocation, undoubtedly. Our message in the European Union is clear. North Korea must abandon its nuclear weapons, of weapons of mass destruction and ballistic missile programs. And this is now important in a complete, verifiable and irreversible manner and immediately seize all related 
activities. Federico Mogherini is very closely following uh, the development. Uh, she's coordinating our European actions, and of course this issue will also be discussed in Tallinn on Friday and Saturday. And tell us a bit how you shape your input into a debate like that, because this is one of those tricky issues where the EU doesn't have an army, you've got an important role in the parliament, but like you were saying, with these foreign affairs ministers meeting, it, it's really them that have to sort of take the lead in lots of ways. Is it through Mogherini that you do the work, or do you have to fall in behind the EU's nuclear powers, uh, the UK and France, and try and boost them at the United Nations? Federica Mogherini has put the issue of North Korea on the agenda in Tallinn, and she's also invited me to take part in this debate. Um, I will speak out in favour of uh, stricter sanctions. I think Chancellor Merkel and President Macron are absolutely right. Uh, we need to further tighten the sanctions regime in order to increase the diplomatic pressure on North Korea. Uh, there is no military solution to this conflict. We only have uh, diplomatic tools, and the EU is certainly ready to support a process in consultation with key partners, and our aim must be a denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula which would be beneficial for the whole region. But the role of China, of course, is key, and that's why Federico Mogherini, I'm very sure, will closely coordinate the EU's position, especially with Germany, France, and the UK. Now, the name of Mogherini is coming up a lot in this conversation. Do you uh, get a sense that the, the working methods of the EU's external action service, its diplomatic machine, that they're really kind of maturing and that there are closer relations between that service and the parliament and, and all of the people that the EU needs to corral when it wants to have an impact on the world stage? Well, foreign policy remains a responsibility uh, of the member states and I know that the foreign ministers are very self-confident and they always emphasise this, but... I think in the last few years we have seen some major steps forward to a joint a common foreign and security policy. Uh, as a German Christian Democrat, I have nothing to criticise about the work of our um, high representative who is an Italian socialist. I think Federico Mogherini is very open always to cooperate with the Foreign Affairs Committee, which I have the honour to chair. And one other set of issues or region that you've been closely involved in is the Balkans. Can you tell us a little bit more about where your interest stems from there and what's your read on the politics of the region at the moment? Well, I started my political career uh, here in the European Parliament as Rapporteur for Serbia. And despite me now chairing the Foreign Affairs Committee, I've decided to keep my rapporteurship for Serbia until the end of this election period. Um, I spent my childhood with many holidays with my parents uh, in the former Yugoslavia. I believe that the six countries of the Western Balkan region lie in the heart of Europe. They are surrounded by EU member states, and all six countries have a clear European perspective since the EU summit in Thessaloniki many, many years ago. All six countries are moving towards the European Union at a different speed. Montenegro and Serbia are the front runners. Serbia, for instance, has now opened uh, 10 chapters 
out of 35, two have been provisionally closed. And that's in the, the process where you have to complete these 35 exactly. uh, chapters to, to say that you are living up to EU legal and uh, moral and political standards. The EU is still open for new member states. You have to be a, an independent sovereign state in Europe which shares the EU values and which has to go through a very complicated negotiation process. It's hard work to join the European Union um, and it takes quite a long time. But I think that Montenegro and Serbia are eventually progressing so that when they are ready to join, they could join the European Union. But when this will exactly be depends if the necessary reforms are adopted in these countries, but not only adopted but also implemented. Um, for me personally, one thing is very important. History has shown, as in Europe, if there isn't political stability in this region, then the whole European continent quickly can become unstable. That's why it's in our own interest, not only as South Europeans, but also as North, West and East Europeans, that we support those political forces, those responsible political forces in the region, which are interested in good neighbourly relations, uh, in a policy of reconciliation. And that's why we have to support Albania, Serbia, Montenegro uh, and the other three uh, on their path. Um, it's not always easy, but we have a huge interest in helping them. Now, that thought probably takes us neatly into our next topic of the German election campaign, because one of the, the big features of the election debate last Sunday night was the position that Angela Merkel and Martin Schulz took on Turkey and whether we keep that open door and that perspective for Turkey and its EU membership. What's your sense of where that's headed? The parliament has issued a report via an MEP mm -hmm. called Caddy Piri where you know, she's very critical of President Erdogan but clearly believes that there needs to still be some kind of... Uh, cord that attaches the EU and Turkey, that there has to be an open door, otherwise you don't have any leverage over where Turkey heads in the future. What's your thought on the Turkish membership perspective? Turkey remains an important trade partner for us in Europe and a NATO ally, but politically uh, this country has been drifting away from our European standards now uh, for several years. Uh, I deeply regret this development the situation in Turkey is further deteriorating. So there is currently no point in negotiating Turkey's accession to the European Union. The European Parliament has been clear. We voted with a huge majority last year to suspend, to freeze uh, the negotiation, the negotiations with Turkey, but of course it's up to the member states uh, to decide this. Um, the EU-Turkey relations were one of the most interesting points of the German uh, TV debate. Um, Angela Merkel uh, pointed out that she has always been critical of uh, an EU membership for Turkey. Uh, and she also uh, underlined that she doesn't see a chance to renegotiate the European Union Customs Union with Turkey uh, in the moment. Uh, anyhow, she has now announced that she has asked the Estonian Council Presidency to put the topic again on the agenda for next European Council in October. And then the heads of governments will have to discuss the future of EU-Turkey relations 
and it's up to them to decide if the negotiations will be suspended or frozen or terminated. I see the the deteriorating situation in Turkey, and I think the situation is appalling, a regime which is putting independent journalists without any reason into jail, which is putting opposition politicians into jail. Uh, the human rights situation is very worrying, and this has nothing to do with our joint European standards. We've just got to be careful in analysing if we would do Mr Erdogan a favour to pull the plug or if we should suspend the negotiations for a certain amount of time but still show those 48% of Turkish citizens who voted against Mr Erdogan who are not happy with Turkey developing in this negative direction that uh, we still support them. I think it's interesting. One of my observations from not just these last few weeks, but the last few months of the German uh, sort of election context is Angela Merkel's very effective at sort of cutting off the oxygen, the political oxygen supply that Martin Schulz has and politely outmaneuvering him, whether it's on an issue like uh, the same-sex marriage debate, like this Turkish situation. Um, but it strikes me that she must be feeling pretty confident right now if she's putting agenda items on the October Council um, meeting agenda and so on. So I wanted to get a sense, like as a party colleague of, of Mrs Merkel, how you're feeling about the election in general. Well, I spent my summer holidays in August uh, campaigning in northern Germany uh, for the Bundestag elections. Uh, my impression is that the atmosphere, the feeling is very good for the CDU. And the polls are very positive. But we all know, as active politicians, to lead in the polls is nice, but the only thing which counts is what happens on election day. So I think the main task for the CDU will be to actually mobilise our voters to get out and actually go to the uh, polling stations. Um, the CDU-CSU is way ahead of uh, the Social Democrats and... Uh, there aren't many people who really believe that Martin Schulz could become German Chancellor. And the reason is he can only become Chancellor if the Social Democrats become the strongest party in a coalition. Now, there's no chance of a grand coalition under Martin Schulz because the CDU-CSU will be the stronger party. There's no chance for a two-party coalition between the Social Democrats and the Greens because they are far away from being anywhere near 50%. So the only possibility would be a three-party coalition for Mr. Schultz to become Chancellor. Now, the Liberals have said they don't want to form a government with the Greens, so the only alternative he has would be a coalition between the Social Democrats, the Greens, and the Communists, mm. or the Linkspartei, the Socialists. And this party, of course, uh, is a left-wing populist party, uh, critical to Germany's NATO membership, critical to Germany's EU membership, this wouldn't work. And, and, and is that, that possibility the way to beat complacency amongst the CDU voter base? Well, Mr. Because Schultz... Complacency is your biggest risk at the moment, I well, guess. Well, Mr. Schultz hasn't been clear if he would completely rule out this option. But that's the only option he has. So, um, and uh, a federal government in Berlin with participation of the Linkspartei is 
very unpopular. The CDU has been clear, we will not form a coalition government, neither with the radicals from the left nor with the radicals from the right, the Alternative für Deutschland. We are campaigning to become as strong as possible. And then after the elections, we will have to see which coalition options are possible and we will pick the coalition partner where we can implement the most of our agenda. Um, I read these days that still a third of the German voters are undecided. Um, so I think you will see in the last 14 days a very active uh, campaign and I predict we will have a higher turnout than at the last elections because what we've seen in Germany is since the last elections a as we call it in Germany, repolitization of German society. Um, the TV debate was seen by nearly 20 million people. Uh, this shows that I think the German nation is uh, very interested. Now, we might move on to Brexit as our next topic. And I was wondering, you're a, a dual citizen of both uh, Germany and the UK. Um, so there must be a bit of a, a sense of uh, not tension in you. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it must be an interesting time to kind of watch that really sort of fractured debate that's going on in the UK. And, and I've seen in the German press that a lot, of, uh, a lot of journalists and editors are just bemused at how the UK is behaving. I still deeply regret what's happening. Um, the free living former UK prime ministers, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown and David Cameron, have all named Brexit a historic mistake. And John Major, he's still alive. Oh, yes, sorry. Uh, and John Major, sorry, <laughs> sorry, of yet. course. Uh, yeah, it's even four, and, and they're absolutely right. Um, Brexit is a historic mistake. And there are still people who perhaps even feel heartbroken what's happening. But, of course, we have to respect the decision of the UK government to leave the European Union, um, the clock is ticking. And we all knew that the negotiations wouldn't be easy. I mean, this is all unprecedented. We're all entering uncharted territory. But obviously, at the last negotiation round in Brussels, there wasn't enough sufficient progress made. So... I think there are many, many questions if the European Council will decide to enter the second phase of the negotiations at the next meeting in October. Um, I mean, I get the impression that the UK, it's certainly doing more now. It is putting out what it calls position papers. But I feel like they haven't really resolved internally as a country what their position is. So in a way, they don't really take positions sometimes in the negotiations. They sort of reflect on a series of issues, sort of return their focus back home and, and continue fighting. And then that makes it harder to move forward in the way that they say they want and which the EU would obviously also like. Well, the UK has been presenting one paper after the other in the last weeks. I mean, they give us a lot to read, which is fine. But I think one thing is important we can only start a second half of a match when the first half is finished. And we're still playing the first half of this match. And the first half means that first we need clarity about the main details of the British exit of the European Union on citizen rights, 
the Irish border question, especially the financial obligations. And the EU was very clear when we started the negotiations. First, we need an agreement on these issues, and then we can start negotiating the future uh, relationship. Um, I hope that after the Conservative conference at the beginning of October, we might have some more clarity what the British actually want. Now, speaking of clarity, we've got uh, a new Politico product in London, the London Playbook, that's just come onto the market this week, and that's striving to provide clarity through the fog of all of these political debates and and the difficult Brexit period. Um, Tell me, David, have you had a chance to have a read of that? I've subscribed it, and I enjoy reading it. Uh, I think it's great because I'm somebody like many of us here in Brussels who are interested in British politics and would like to be informed every day, five to ten minutes, what's happening in the UK. Um, I can only wish you uh, success uh, with this format and it's really worth reading. Wonderful. You've got a job in the political marketing department (laughs) anytime you want, David. (laughs) Well, thanks for joining us on EU Confidential and uh, good luck in Tallinn. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Well, that was David McAllister, and now it's time to move into the podcast panel elements of this week's EU Confidential. And now it's time for our EU WTF podcast panel. We're welcoming back Alva Finn. Good evening, Ryan. And we're welcoming, for one week only, Harry Cooper, one of the playbook journalists here at Politico. Hi there, Ryan. So, our WTF moment this week, it's an Azerbaijan money laundering scheme of a substantial size, where the ruling elite of Azerbaijan is accused of operating a secret 3 billion euro money laundering scheme to pay prominent Europeans, including politicians, uh, also giving them luxury goods, and routing that through British companies and an Estonian bank branch. Now, Danske Bank has admitted that its Estonian branch has been used uh, for money laundering, And then a series of politicians are in denial about bank records that have been published about supposed transactions between them and these Azerbaijani connections. One is Eduard Lindner, a German ex-MP, and the other is an Italian Christian Democrat, Luca Volante. And there were some uh, multi-million dollar payments to some of those individuals. Alva, what did you think when you first read this story? Well, I think one of the things that you left out there is that some of these payments uh, were allegedly going to uh, members of the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, which is not to be confused with the Council of the European Union. It's Uh, not even to be remembered, potentially. (laughs) Well, what is the Council of Europe's Parliamentary Assembly? Yeah, so the Council of Europe is a human rights body, so it kind of is a watchdog uh, at European level and has many members, many more members than is in the the EU. uh, And its most famous uh, body really is is the court, the European Court of Human Rights, which um, often, well, it has is very um, memorable uh, because a lot of it, it makes uh, changes to laws uh, by, by setting precedent. However, the Parliamentary Assembly itself, um, yeah, one could be forgiven for for not knowing what it is. And I'm frankly quite shocked that anybody would pay. Um, anybody, any substantial amount of money to kind of keep them quiet. Um, Well, what were they doing? There was a report on Azerbaijan's human rights situation. Exactly, and who who would have ever reported on it uh, in the media is is another thing, but 
I mean, here's here's my question: if if they if they were if the Azerbaijani government was willing to spend so much money on the parliamentary assembly of the Council of Europe, what on earth are they spending on in the European Parliament? Well, there we go. I mean, we, right. we've and got so, about three million pinned so down out of three billion. That leaves two point nine seven billion to go to other people. I don't know if you've ever looked at the financial declarations of MEPs, but they're rarely filled in. There's no oversight, and there's absolutely no way of knowing exactly what gifts are being received by MEPs. Of course, impossible to know what's going on. But you need only look at the controversy that was associated with the resolution the uh, parliament voted on a few years ago about Azerbaijan, it kicked off a massive diplomatic scandal. And yeah, they have a big operation here. And presumably, they're, uh, they're going to be giving gifts to MEPs as well. And do we think it's only Azerbaijan that's up to these tricks in Europe? I imagine that that is not the case. I think the other thing about that, that whole thing is that the Council of Europe, the president who uh, of the, the PACE, the Parliamentary Assembly, is basically embroiled in another scandal for going to go and visit the Syrian president at a very strange time. So I think I would imagine that this does happen, this kind of like horse trading, this caviar diplomacy between different countries. And I think that maybe people knew that this was happening with Azerbaijan for quite a long time, but couldn't really say. Well, at this point, I should point out that the Azeri government, let's say, via a spokesperson, has claimed that this is all a smear and that it is a setup by British intelligence. So we need to put that on the record that they've said that. Now, time for an EU thumbs up very quickly. I'm going to nominate Jean-Claude Juncker's rather sassy letter that he sent back to Viktor Orban Tuesday afternoon after Orban requested a 50% reimbursement for his border fences that he's been building over the last two years. And Juncker, in that letter, he pointed out that actually they'd offered quite a bit of money to Hungary for migration support and management, and uh, that if Hungary was going to take the EU to court over its refugee policy, it might want to consider that solidarity is a two-way street before it brings such court challenges. I mean, I, ju- I just love it when uh, these kind of exchanges remind us that we're dealing with human beings um, and quite um, naughty human beings. And so I think Victor Orban knew exactly what he was doing with the original letter. And it was written in very sort of structured, clear, precise, formal English. And the response was similarly in very precise, formal language. But you could see that Jean-Claude Juncker or Martin Selmay, his chief of staff, they must have had a wonderful time writing that letter. <laughs> And you know, actually, that um, they wanted media attention because when the Hungarian government wants to slow a process down, it has no hesitation sending you a letter in very formal Hungarian, which few mid-level staffers at the European Commission speak. Uh, So when he wants a reaction, the correspondence is in English. And when he doesn't want a reaction, it's in Hungarian. Yeah, I thought it was very entertaining. Like, you know, solidarity isn't like EU funds are not a a la carte menu. Um, but also, I think it very much does point out the fact that Hungary could have been a recipient of all of these, you know, benefits of European membership, uh, particularly when they were dealing with the the huge amounts of numbers who were coming through. Uh, yeah, so I thought it was a good kind of response. But then also, what's the point in all this cattiness? Um, it's a little bit like kind of high drama, uh, and that kind of stuff annoys me. So yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and then obviously they leaked it. So uh, it just, it's all a bit snarky, isn't it? And, and uh, it I just is. think well, it's a little bit ridiculous. Enough of the high drama. Let's get down to some practical problem solving. That's more up Alva's alley. Uh, we're going to go to the Dear Politico section of the podcast now. 
And this week we have a rather long letter, so I'm forced to give you the abridged version. Uh, but I very much appreciate that this was uh, delivered by post. It's our first Dear Politico delivered by post. And in it, a staff member of the Expo crew at the House of European History, so that's a new museum that's opened up in Brussels and it's funded by the European Parliament. Uh, this staff member uh, writes to complain that the pay is uh, essentially terrible, not much more than the minimum salary, the staff member writes. Uh, and they say that they have officially a lunch break of one hour, but Often that is reduced to half an hour, and sometimes when uh, certain staff members don't turn up or there's a problem, the lunch uh, break disappears entirely. And uh, in particular, they complain that there are no mobile stools, as in nowhere for staff members to sit, that basically you have to walk around uh, for your entire nine-hour shift. And one final point that really grabbed me in the list of complaints, it's alleged that in the event of a fire, visitors are required to first deposit the tablet computers that they use to guide themselves around exhibitions with the staff crew. So in other words, you've got to find one of these tired, poorly paid staff members, give them your tablet before saving yourself from the fire. What is your advice to this staff member? They say they've tried to write to the human resources uh, contract agency that um, manages these staff that work on the floor and that they get no or slow replies. So how does this person go about changing their work situation? You know, I, I've, I've got a suggestion. They should, uh, they should simply send uh, this letter that we've, we've, uh, uh, we've received to one of the many MEPs on the Employment Affairs Committee and say, um, this is what we're dealing with. And you'll find that quite a few socialist MEPs, I would imagine, would be only too happy to raise this with the uh, leadership of the European Parliament. That just would be my suggestion. Very useful. Alva? Yeah, I think my thought is that when I read it initially and I read the whole thing, that uh, it seemed in some of the parts that you were a little bit inflexible. Now, I do, I absolutely agree. Every, for health and safety reasons, you should be able to sit down sometimes. Uh, you should be able to take to take your lunch. But if occasionally that doesn't happen, uh, I mean, that is kind of, that happens everywhere. It happens to me sometimes. I have to stay at my desk and do so your things. point is that's life, get and, over it. And not that's life, get over it. But if is it happening all the time? I mean, I've worked in jobs like this where you're expected to stay like like 15 minutes just to see how things went at the end, especially in expo crews. Uh, so not, none of this really surprised me, apart from what you said about the health and safety meeting. I mean, that's the opposite of health and safety. You have to stay in you as a staff member has to stay and collect what is a valuable item from guests at the museum before you leave if there's something happening. I mean, that's absolutely ridiculous. I think you should take that much higher. We got in touch with the European Parliament and the European House of History to find out their side of this complaint story. The European Parliament media team wrote back and said that there is a company called MGS who manage the floor staff at the museum. The Parliament doesn't intervene in the day-to-day organisation of how these staff are working, but they stress that MGS does need to respect all applicable laws. At the time that we contacted them, the Parliament wasn't aware of this specific complaint, but they say that lunch breaks are defined and that MGS is responsible for implementing and upholding those lunch break rules. And there is one stool and several chairs on each floor of the museum to make sure staff can sit whenever there is a chance for a break. The Parliament stresses that the job description of floor staff is that they obviously have to welcome and assist the public. That requires them to be standing a lot of the time. They're not meant to be sitting when there are visitors in their space. 
On the question of whether there are appropriate fire safety instructions and what to do about handing back tablets in the event of a fire, we got a response, but it was really just repeating that there are clear fire safety instructions. It wasn't engaging with whether this was the appropriate way to handle the situation or not. So there you have it. You be the judge, listeners. That's what we've got time for on this week's EU Confidential. Of course, podcasting is a team effort, so I want to give a big shout-out to Wei Dong Lin, Andrew Gray, and Cynthia Crowett, without whom we couldn't have made this episode of EU Confidential. Don't forget to try and give us a rating or a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you found this podcast. Just one or two people giving that review will help increase our visibility and get the podcast into the inboxes, into the visibility of more and more people across Europe and the world. 